When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 321. We're recording on Thursday, July 11th, 2019. I'm Jeff. She's Rebecca. This is bookriot.com, sort of, kind of, basically. Adjacent. Yeah. We're back. Middle, of, the, middle of July, we're high summering. Yep, it's dog days here. Hot, toasty. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of book news coming out, uh, but and we've got some follow up. We've got all sorts of stuff going on. You guys did a great job, or some of you did a great job with some fundraising. Rebecca dropped this. We're going to get to all of that, but first, let's do our first sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the one that got away with murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer, always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, follow up. Rebecca, tell us about Bookstores Against Borders and what we did, what they did, just, just, the, whole, just the whole thing. Give us Sure. So if you didn't happen to catch the little drop-in announcement that I put here last week, um, a, an independent bookstore called A Room of One's Own, which is in Madison, Wisconsin, started a fundraiser for the holiday weekend called Bookstores Against Borders. They were going to be closed on the 4th, and so they said we're going to donate a portion of our sales from July 5th through 7th over that weekend to RACES, which is a nonprofit organization based in Texas that provides legal support um, and education, either for free or very low cost, to people who have been detained in the immigrant camps at the border and their families families. Um, they originally, I think, had a goal of $10,000. And then it has just been increasing as the response has been really amazing. Um, a bunch of other bookstores joined in, we decided to, I guess, signal boost might be mm -hmm. the best, uh, the best possible term there and do a matching donation over the weekend up to $2,500. Um, so Book Riot readers, I'm happy and really proud to be able to report, um, spent either their, a combination of their purchases at the participating bookstores and donations to the fundraising efforts was just about $11,000, mm. um, which was awesome to see. And if you were one of those people who participated and uploaded a receipt to our site, thank you so much for doing that and for 
for supporting these stores and their activism. Um, so we made our donation earlier this week of 2500 our max match amount, um, to Bookstores Against Borders. And at this moment that I am looking, it's on Thursday the 11th, um, they have raised $74,240 against a goal of um, – it had been raised to fifty. Um, so really blowing things out of the water. Um, like on most fundraising pages, you can see the history of donations. And it's really cool to scroll through this one, I think, because you can see individuals who are donating. You can see some of the bookstores that are donating. And some bookstores have donated several thousand dollars as a chunk mm-hmm. of their sales from over the weekend. But a really, I think, inspiring and awesome way to see independent bookstores use um, the power that they have in their communities to mobilize their communities towards activism and towards something that, frankly, we should all care a lot about and be very upset about. So um, you can still support the fundraiser if you didn't get a chance to shop at one of the Mm -hmm. participating stores over the weekend. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Or if you search online for Bookstores Against Borders, you'll find your way there. Yeah, you and Amanda did a great job um, putting that together. And then everyone who participated. Thank you so much. I, I, we were thrilled, excited to see the participation, also giving us ideas about future such yeah, things. So yeah, it's probably not the ideas. last thing you're going to hear from us. I, you know, the other piece of this is relates to stuff we've talked about before. The kind of thing, if you were making a pitch to your local city council as a bookstore about lowering mm. your taxes or getting some kind of accommodation, kind of exactly the kind of thing they mean, right? The kind of exactly thing we talk about when we talk about what independent bookstores mean to our community, kind of what Josh Christie talked about in um, our second, our, our very second episode of Annotated, How Did books, uh, bookstores, Independent Bookstores Avoid Going Extinct? Being a part of the community, doing something for the community aside from, in addition to, an enhancement of the slinging of books part of, the, of what the company is. So a good reminder of the specificity um, of what bookstores can do. Um, and we were glad to be, you know, trying to lift, um, support and otherwise enhance their efforts there. And thank you all those folks out there that did that. Okay. Follow up. We talked last week about Microsoft's ebook store going away and you would get a credit and so on and so forth. Um, Ben wrote us in with an related, but slightly different, angle on the ramifications of DRM. So he Mm. basically was an original Nook owner, but for a variety of reasons, many of which I could understand uh, (laughs) and intuit, went over to Kindle. The problem there is if you're on a dedicated device from one e-tailer, you can't bring your books with you because they are DRM'd and locked into that particular ecosystem. So what he did and what he does now is he strips the DRM from the e-books that he purchases. Um, there's software out there apparently, which we will not link to because I'm frankly not sure about the legality of this situation. Yeah. Um, and but he keeps them. He doesn't distribute them. He's not uploading the BitTorrent sites, but he's basically making the move from I'm buying a license to I have the files, and saying, thinking, and I think maybe I agree. I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it too much. Maybe I don't. Even, it doesn't. No one cares what my stand on it necessarily is. This is a thing that you can do because that platform lock in is another effect of DRM. Whether or not the platform goes away is one thing, but what if you want to go to a different platform? I think it's an interesting point. Um, I had meant to do a little bit of research before getting to follow up. I did just get to it about the legality of mm. you know what, what it actually takes to get there. Maybe I'll share some of that next time. But Ben, thank you for writing in. That's a part of the DRM situation I'd forgotten. One thing I do, I actually buy from several different ebook retailers depending on the deals or utility. My go-to is um, the iBook store on Apple because it's built into my iPad where you know it's I can just one buy it, one click buy it. But then also based on a deal or something else, I might go to Amazon, I might go to downpour.com, um, I might go to uh, to Nook based on a deal. And since I have an app for them, I can read them on my iPad. But the effect there is I've got like six ebook libraries all over these places, mm-hmm. which is not ideal. It also got me thinking, have you, I don't remember the thing. I think it's called Hollywood.com or something like this. It's an app for the Apple TV and some other platforms that basically they've made a, the, the big movie studios have made this kind of amazing agreement that I would never think possible that no matter where you bought your movie from, it will funnel into this one app. So if I bought something on Amazon or on iTunes or on walmart.com or somewhere else, 
it is an omnivorous app that will collect and manage the DRM from all of those places. So you can buy from anywhere and it'll show up in one app. And I was thinking, man, that would Ooh, be awesome for eBooks. That's cool, yeah. Very cool. Um, I'll try to find a link there if someone knows it or have used it. I haven't used it myself. Um, but that's one of those situations where an industry much larger than books has figured out some way to do this. There are also, frankly, less, uh, fewer um, movie studios than there are publishers. So there are more cats to herd. But it is technically possible. You just need buy-in. Um, that's an interesting and elegant way around DRM protection. And like in the early days of Napster, I remember people saying pirating will never go away, but you can lessen its financial impact by making things that you can pay for just as easy and not, if not just as easy, even easier than pirating, mm -hmm. right? Spotify is easier than pirating crap. It just is. Yep. And I pay for it, right? I mean, I know you and I are both heavy Spotify users, but I was around for the early days of Napster and it was easy, but it's not as easy as Spotify. Yeah. No, we, and it was by the time I was in college, LimeWire had sort of taken over. I think the mm. Napster guy was already getting sued. And I remember, like, I think I still have somewhere a folder full of CDs that, yes. that Bob and I burned sitting mm -hmm. in his dorm room, but like painstakingly downloading songs one at a time from LimeWire and then putting them onto these CDs. And I don't even remember at this point, like yeah. what software we used to do that. And it was so much work. It's so much easier to just pay my money to Spotify and put together a playlist, mm -hmm. which I will be devastated someday if Spotify goes away. Like I would at this point probably give them a thousand dollars if they were like, <laughs> we're going you can away. download all your playlists. Yes, but you can, right, exactly. But you can download all your playlists and then, and then you don't That's have really to like funny. recreate or re no. like remember what everything was. I think this is also one thing we've talked about is the reluctance is maybe too weak of the big publishers to get involved with subscription ebook services. And one of the strategy taxes of doing that is they're not able to offer a service like Hollywood.com, like Spotify. Mm -hmm. And piracy of ebooks, I think, is still a real problem, and more so in, than the music space, because there are some things that you can't get through a subscription service, and you don't want to pay Fourteen ninety nine for a new ebook when the paperback or the hardback is a dollar cheaper and you're enraged and you're flying around and you're sort of just piracing. You're, you know, you might just pirating out of spite. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another thing that's happened around Napster. It's like, I don't want to pay for this thing when I'm just going to listen to two songs. That was one of the big, I don't know if it was facile or disingenuous, but I could kind of undergree in the day. You couldn't buy a single song back then. It's hard to remember that now. You right. had to go buy the whole Soul Asylum album for the one song <laughs> that you Asylum. wanted. I deeply love that that's the example we went to. They have one song. It's true. Soul, uh, what is it? Soul Train? Or, uh, Runaway Train. Mm -hmm. The lead song on their 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 best one. That's the song everyone wanted. But you had to go down and be twenty four ninety nine for the giant CD in the giant case because you wanted the one song. And some of that has been solved on the in the music side by first the single track buying. But now I just do my subscription. I can listen to Runaway Train anytime I want to, which is never. But I could do it theoretically. Um, and this is another unpublicized side effect of publishing not providing ebook subscription solutions. Mm -hmm. Piracy. I yep. think a lot of the piracy stuff would go away if there was a Spotify of ebooks. And I'm going to use. I think Spotify is actually more. I yep. think that's a better example than Netflix for ebooks. I think so just too. in terms of use case. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Arcs. Yeah. Okay. I will well, just quickly connect it to that oh, story. Yes, I do. was saying last week that I think there needs to be more consumer education about yes. th th this fact that you're getting a license to a thing. You're not actually going to own the file forever. And I came across one this week. Maybe you've seen others, and if you have, I'd love to know it. Um, John Warner's column in the. Chicago Tribune was titled Kindle and Nook readers, you know, you don't own those books, right? And he is talking about the Microsoft ebook store going away and those ebooks disappearing. And also it functions. I think the intention here is to function as consumer education for like, this could happen to you too, hmm. um, with your ebooks uh, in a way that I think, as we were saying last week, most readers are not aware of. And um, so I was happy to see that I'd love to see more of it. Okay, now let's talk about galleys. <laughs> Um, so this is from Elizabeth. She says, thank you for your conversation about ARCs. They are sort of the elephant in the room no one talks about. As an ordinary reader, ARCs are rare gems I tend to hoard when I find them. What do professional book readers tend to do with ARCs after they read and reviewed? Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Um, look, there's a couple of different things that get piled on to this galley mm -hmm. situation. 
I think the one, the root of the root here, and Rebecca can tell me if she agrees or disagrees or you know wants to put a little spin on it, is this question kind of goes away if you don't think of books as precious objects of innate and total value because you can put them in the recycling. Yep. You can do it. <laughs> so that's what I do. Yeah. Um, I sometimes will donate if there's something that I think I'll donate to a women's shelter. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a great place in Portland. I have. I also don't get as many arcs as I used to. But frankly, the 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 ones I get every now and again isn't enough to you know put into a big box that I can take somewhere. They go in the recycling. Yeah. So there's a couple things here, and there's no answer inside the industry that will make everyone. That's happy. exactly right. Great point. Um, one of the most common things that I've seen now in 10, 10, 11 years as a blogger, who boy, getting old up there in the internet, um, <laughs> is that like people who come new to book blogging or like when we get new contributors at Book Riot, they often ask, what am I supposed to do with these? What's the right thing? And even among the staff and among the contributors, we have different philosophies. There are different schools of thought about it. So the first like top line thing is you're not supposed to sell them. And now many You're not of them, supposed to. and now many of them are coming with stickers, like not for resale, because um, publishers are concerned that arcs getting out into the world will cannibalize their actual sales. I don't know if that's valid or not, but that's a concern mm-hmm. that they have, and galleys are not produced with the intention of being sold. They're produced with the intention of generating sales by getting people in the media to write about them. That basically that's the whole point is getting people in the media to buy, to write about them or getting booksellers to read the galley and then carry the books in their stores. Ditto for librarians on and on. Um, but it's intended as a sales tool, not as a cannibalizer. Mm-hmm. Um, I donate most of mine. I donate them to a women's shelter, to some local um, like thrift stores that will do shelves of free books. And my stance on this is if you are in a place in your life where the only way for you to get books is to get them for free, or if you're choosing to spend your money on other things and you want galleys from mm-hmm. that shelf. I'm, I am personally fine with that. Um, and I have a friend who's an English teacher and runs a classroom library with her students. And so I'll hold off, um, the kinds of books that she's told me are appropriate for that and donate them to her classroom. Some publishers or some folks in publishing would prefer the recycling bin method actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it means like galleys are uncorrected. So th- there will still be spelling errors or sometimes there are substantive changes to a story after the galleys go out. Um, I've read a couple of books where I read the galley like very early. And then by the time I got the finished copy of the book, like characters names were totally different or a storyline was changed. So sometimes things are just not polished yet. And sometimes big changes happen and publishers and some authors would prefer that that unfinished work not see the light of day because they don't want somebody to see their baby before it's completely done um, which they i don't also, send it out well, anyway, that's my <laughs> I know, don't send I, it out that's i understand cool. it but yes. i don't care enough about that <laughs> no, to, for it to keep me from donating them no. to people that are in need or who would otherwise not have reading material um so that's what i do with it um I've heard of people, you know, recycling them, using them as kindling. Mm-hmm. Like there's, it really does depend first, I think, on your relationship to the book as an object yeah. <laughs> and, and some of the ethical stuff there. But most of the people I know who do this professionally are doing some combination of just getting rid of them and donation. I think you will not be led astray by this, I don't know, maxim, which is whatever you do with it, you're not, don't, it's not, shouldn't be about personal gain after you're done, after you are done with the arc, whatever that means done. If you read and reviewed and want to keep it forever, that's your prerogative, I think. I mean, I never really thought about that. Like, if you want to keep it on your shelves and be part of your collection, I think that's part of the, the situation. Or if you've read it and just considered it for review coverage, I think that's cricket in my book. The thing that mm-hmm. isn't cricket for most people, or, or just industry-wide, I'd say, is if you get a review copy and then you do something with it to enrich yourself personally, you right. know, to, to sell it, to do whatever. If you're giving it away, it still exists in the ecosystem, I guess. If there is a published copy out there, but you're not profiting from mm-hmm. it really, except by, I guess, a warm fuzzy that you made the trip over there. I think for my piece, that's fine. I think if you get a galley and turn around and sell it, like you're breaking the spirit of the contract you sort of implicitly entered into if you've solicited a copy for review coverage. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a little murkier, murky, uh, murkier if you get something unsolicited. I've always thought it's a bit 
strange for someone to send you something unsolicited and then there to be an implied contract about what you can do with that thing they sent you that you didn't ask for? I mean, maybe I'm getting into like the ethicist territory on the New York Times. <laughs> I still wouldn't sell it, but but don't tell me from your high horse not to sell it. Like I understand what you're trying to do. Um, I think be less precious yeah. about them. Donate the ones you don't want. Don't sell the ones that you think are valuable. Some yeah, people I, are like, well, I, if you give it to your library, they'll just turn around and sell it. Well, yeah. you aren't well, being enriched. And there is a very famous independent bookstore in New yes, York. That, it's called The Strand. I'm not, I'm not afraid. <laughs> well, and Housing Works, too, um, yeah. have shelves of like where you can find galleys in their used book shelves. Mm-hmm. And that is all talk about an elephant in the room or like open secret in the industry. Um, that happens to some independent bookstores I've seen will do a giveaway of like, if you spend $50 in the store, you can take a book from our galley shelves, which I think is cool because of exactly the kind of thing that Elizabeth is talking about here Mm -hmm. in this letter that like when you're an ordinary reader, getting access to a book before it's published feels really special. And for indies to be able to like use that as a tool that they have that like Barnes and Noble is never going to to do that kind of a promotion um, to sort of, incentivize sales, I think is interesting and smart. I've seen that done. Um, I would say like not to totally rain on the parade of thinking of them as rare gems. Like if it's just cool to get access to a book before it's for sale, I totally get that for the most part. Um, like unless a book is a surprise hit and there were only a few galleys Mm. of it, an arc is not going to have any financial value down the line. Like even uh, like big titles, there are like literally thousands of galleys printed um, for most of them. And so like a, I know we've been talking about the night circus a lot. Like if you had a a night circus galley back from 2010 um, that you wanted to sell on eBay, like maybe you could sell it for that much money to someone who just super, loves Aaron Morgenstern, but it wouldn't be valuable because of its rarity. No, no. I think in the older days when there were fewer review copies and they'd send out like five, right? Right. Like like, like an F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, who knows? I remember when doing the research about Watership Down um, for annotated, like they didn't use any advertising budget, but they sent out a whole bunch of reviews copies. So I know Mm -hmm. that at least 50 years ago, that was a consideration. I don't know in the 20s or 30s if you could get a galley or something like that. You're real now. You're in the now you're in the the realm of rare books, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just not what we're talking about yeah. here. That's that's not what we're talking about here. But anyway, I, I'd say as long as you're not getting, as long as you're not transacting the book in which you are personally being enriched, I think you're on the right side of the law and. I don't love the strand. I don't love that the strand sells them myself. I don't mind housing work does a nonprofit, so the money goes mm-hmm, to AIDS mm-hmm, research and health. Right. Hard for me to get my panties in a bunch about that. Um, but the the strand, I've never liked that. And I remember thinking that when I wasn't in books at all, and I had first moved to New York, and I was walking around the strand, and there were review copies, and I was like, whoa! It felt like I was seeing behind the uh, the great and powerful Oz's curtain a little bit um, to have that access to. I mean, publishing has events at the strand. I've, as far as I've known, there's never been like a formal request or reprimand from publishing to the strand. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure about – there's no legal contract. It's just an object. You haven't mm-hmm. signed a piece of paper saying you're not going to sell it. So, I mean, we're well on the other side of legality here. But as an individual reviewer who wants to act well, I think you live by don't enrich yourself personally. You're going to be fine. Donate it. Give it away. Put it on a shelf. Put it in the recycling bin. Oh yeah. Keep it forever. All that. Sh- all that stuff is fun. Oh yeah, yeah. One of those. Uh, uns- I've somehow years ago got on a mailing list for like pretty mainstream commercial like mm. mystery thrillers, which is not a thing that I read. I have attempted to get off of this list like five times. It has been unsuccessful, and my mother in law loves them. And so, like another thing that I do is pile up the mystery thrillers that I never asked for that I can't make stop coming to my house and I give them to my mother-in-law and she passes them around among her friends and like, okay, maybe they're reading some of those books instead of going to their bookstore more, most likely they would have gone to the library anyway. I can't care about that. Yeah. I just, I just can't imagine that it makes a difference in the, wider performance of an individual title. Yeah, I, I can't get just, there. I can't get well, there. This is just like the perk of having a book person in your circle is mm-hmm. sometimes you're going to get stuff early. You know, one yeah, of my girlfriends like, you know, loves People Sarah that work McQueen. at grocery stores right. at a restaurant, you get a free dessert every now and yeah. again. No one's crying tears over that. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, last couple of feed. We asked about what <clears throat> ethical legal questions aside, more of a thought experiment is what 
galleys would you pay a premium for? Um, Miranda wrote in and said she had a hard time. She had four. Mm. Uh, Tana French, she said the Martha Wells murder bot novel. So it's not just Martha Wells. It's that particular series or okay. ongoing. Um, the Anne Leckie, anything, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then N.K. Jemison. So clearly she's a mystery and science fiction Sci-fi, fantasy yeah. nerd. And then Clint, our, our friend and colleague, said whatever Kevin Kwan's next Crazy Rich Asian series, he would pay triple. <laughs> he said maybe quadruple. I maybe think. quadruple. <laughs> so write it down three and a half times. Um, but other than that, we, there was a lot. Yeah. Of, I got a couple emails like I'm not. I, I can't think of anything. So I know. I think if another Master and Commander book were to get <laughs> magically written by Patrick O'Brien, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my dear husband would he would pony up for it, okay. for Captain Aubrey. He sure would. Okay. All right, so then we're going to – we have some more follow-up, but it's more newsy, less listener feedback. So we're going to do our next sponsor, which is The Great Courses Plus. Sometimes we all need – Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books – And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must-read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. The break from the constant news cycle and the Great Courses Plus is the perfect escape. With this streaming service, we can pick up a new hobby or build our knowledge on virtually any topic, like the psychology behind Grimm's fairy tales or the science of extreme weather. There are even how-to courses on everything from writing to speaking a new language, all presented by award-winning experts who are so passionate about what they teach that you'll get sucked in. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen every time. Here's one that's interesting. We all have really amazing cameras in our pockets now, in our in the form of our phones. Better than the cameras we would have had at really any any time. You have them all the time. We're taking more pictures and more situations. What if you knew something about actually taking pictures? Kind of remarkable, right? You could learn something. So we would recommend checking out the course Fundamentals of Photography. I looked at one there's, and another nice thing is about the Great Course Plus, you can look at the whole series and see is, is there a couple of the lectures or classes in that course that you're specifically interested in. The one I looked at was about found and ambient light. So you're out there in the world or you're in your house and you have certain existing lighting conditions. How can you best take a picture to utilize and get the picture, best picture you can under a variety of lighting conditions? I think that's really cool. You're not talking necessarily about being an uh, expert professional-grade photographer, though you can certainly do that if you want to, but simple things that will make your pictures a lot better. 
There's great tips and tricks for taking better photos for work, family events. Even if you get into it, maybe you want to be a prosumer. Maybe you want to be someone who will take wedding pictures for friends or portraits of, of new babies or whatever else it might be. So empower yourself with knowledge. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. We've worked out this fantastic limited time offer for our listeners. Get a full free month of unlimited access when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. Okay, speaking of Morgan Stern, good stuff here. Uh, there's an article in Publishers Weekly, ni- Publishers Weekly, a nice little feature featurette. I don't know why I want to call it a featurette rather than a feature. It wasn't like a huge New Yorker thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. We were we were troubling the Dan Brown Meridian. Where is mm. the Meridian? And in that piece, it said there are apparently more than 3 million copies in print worldwide of the Night Circus. Now, that in-print situation is meaningfully vague, and maybe I'm not sure what we're talking. Is that Are we talking physical copies, Rebecca? Would that, or is that audio? Is that just, is that like where they penned, uh, they penned the screenplay? We're actually not talking about in-print. We're talking about total copies, or is that actually I... print? What do you take that to mean these days? Well, in-print, I take to mean actual print. Yeah. Um, hard copies that were sold. Um, Would you be shocked if it was a total number, though? No. Because 3 million copies in print means there's another 15%, so another 450,000 yeah. in audiobook, and, and then another 450 or more in ebook. So that you're, you're getting close to 4 million yeah, copies. Yeah, you know, I think 3 million in print or whatever the in print number is now that we're doing the semantics about it. Like the, the number of copies in print is really the only number that a publisher could provide. That's not just completely revealing the total number sold, um, but they because, don't, and you, they don't want to do that. You don't right. Think. And oh. well, or I mean, they could, but I don't know if they, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what they're saying with 3 million in print, because like we can't, we've, you know, lamented for years here that we don't know how many ebook editions of any title mm-hmm. are sold because most of them are sold by Amazon and Amazon doesn't give up the numbers, um, and ditto for audiobooks. It becomes much harder to track. Like it's already a disaster trying to know (laughs) how many printed copies, like actual physical copies of a book have been sold also because of Amazon, um, and the New York times bestseller lists and who reports to book scan and all of those shenanigans. Like it's hard enough to know just the print copies, but trying to guess how many of, um, eBooks or audiobooks. I just don't, I don't know three. I think I'm going to go with it's 3 million have you think come that's, off that's the press paper copies yeah. paper mm-hmm. copies yeah cuz we don't even have a term of art for total right like we, right. If, if, if this like, was a if this aggregate number would be let's say it's 4 million copies sold yeah, well, because like, does that include ebooks from libraries like yeah, what the hell is I, that number right i don't i have no idea and like once you produce the ebook and make it available and the audiobook and make it available, is it like one copy of the ebook exists and everyone is licensing it? <laughs> yeah, well, according to the DRM, right. you know, I guess so. There's actually just one copy of uh, the Night Circus and audiobooks, but it's just distributed to a whole bunch of yeah, You get to share it with a million people. I think this is a distinction that's not actually a difference for this particular, but the scale, even if it's the total number of mm-hmm. copies bought. Three million, I think, is more than I would have guessed. That's a bigger hit, even as someone who likes the Night Circus, yeah. than I would have expected. That, yeah, me too. Like the number that I've heard pretty frequently for literary fiction, and I think the Night Circus lives in a really interesting place yep. between. It's in a weird Venn diagram of like you could sell it as YA or as mm-hmm. literary fiction or as like light fantasy, light romance. It does a bunch of things. Um, but for literary fiction, I've heard like a really good debut novel, like that performs very well, sells about a hundred thousand copies. And so 3 million is mm. great. Like a hundred thousand is just phenomenal. Like yes. that's a breakout, good job, literary novel. Um, 3 million. Whew. Good job, Aaron Morgenstern. Yeah. And if you would have told that, told us that number and then asked us if we think it would get review copies, I think we might have said no. We, I think we might have said that might be on the other side of the Dan Brown Meridian, though I'm not sure. I'm oh, not no. Sure. I think it's been long enough. Like, I still stand oh, by... Oh, the length. Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a different It's been long enough. Factor. Like, long that... Enough. I I do think if if the Night Circus had come out in whenever it came out, 2011, and, been th- and sold 3 million copies in, mm. like, a year, and then she had released her next book in 2012 or 2013, maybe they would have crossed the Dan Brown Meridian. Mm. Um, but there's also, like... I think it's really gutsy to decide after one novel 
that you don't need to publish or that you don't need to send out galleys for an author anymore. Like there's going to be a lot of questions about like, can they do it again? Or is it a sophomore slum kind of situation? Do you know, I wonder if there are galleys of Artemis because the Martian sold like gangbusters and that was his first book. There were. That, that's the only equivalent I can yeah. really think of in my there own There were experience. galleys of Artemis. There were. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that suggests that, that the Dan Brown reading is fairly high for a yeah, second Yeah, and now book. that I'm like thinking about it, I think there's a couple components of the Dan Brown Meridian. It's not mm. just like how many books has the person sold and can we rely on their popularity, but also like is are they well enough established with consistency that people mm. will just buy based on the author's name um, yeah. and don't need to like see evidence from reviews that the book is going to be good. I guess the supermarket test would there would be does the author's name appear above the title and bigger mm, than the title mm-hmm. of the book in right. like a mass market paperback situation. That yeah. might be one that's mm-hmm. interesting. Speaking now of I books, wonder what oh, the ahead. last Dan Brown book that they did galleys for was. It can't be after Da Vinci Code. No. I mean, was Angels and Demons big enough? Because that was the first one, right? Yeah, Angels and Demons was the first one in that in the Robert Langdon yeah. oeuvre. Um, oeuvre. Oeuvre. The rare I, trip thong. Yeah, uh, anyway. I was not a bookseller yet when when Da Vinci came out. If you're a bookseller and you remember, mm. were there galleys of the Da Vinci Code, or did they anticipate it being like a big deal and they just were they just dropped just it like Beyonce? Speaking of selling books, um, the Publishers Weekly has mid year reports on the best selling books of the year so far. I guess before we get into it, were there review copies of Becoming? Do you know? No. See. That's one. I guess it's technically a debut. So there's there's the pre pre meridian. <laughs> you're not even. She's not even on the globe. Not even in the same world. Michelle Obama. The top twenty selling books of the year: kids, adult, everything else. Not a surprise. It wasn't a surprise to us. If you don't follow books that closely, you might be surprised that "Where the Crawdads Sing" by Dahlia Owens from Putnam is the best selling single title of the year thus far, with more than nine hundred and seven thousand. These are print books, mm-hmm. and this is book scan, so they don't even catch all print books. 907,000. That is a heck of a job for, I believe, a debut now. We know, we were just talking about this. We know nothing about this book. Like, we're, we've been talking about it for something else we might be working on. But, like, I, I, this came out of nowhere, to my knowledge. To my knowledge, this came out yeah, of nowhere. I've been trying to figure it out this morning because. I've been, I was looking in this first paragraph of the Publishers Weekly piece. So 907,000 copies in the first half of this year and more than 1.1 million copies since its release. It was released last August. So it's yeah. been it's been out for almost a year. But in the first six months, from August of last year to January 1st, it would have sold about like 200,000 copies. Yes. And then it sold 907 this year. And Reese Witherspoon named it to her book club last September. Because my initial thought was like, oh, I wonder if it was just quiet for six six months and then Reese Witherspoon did the thing and now like then it took off. Maybe it's just that slow burn of like Reese Witherspoon did it, but I don't think there's a lot of like fresh or um, time sensitive content connected to Reese's book club. If there is, please let me know. Um, So that could also just be like, she signal boosted it in September and it's been picking up steam, but it, it has picked up a lot of steam in the last six months and it took it a while to get started. But like, I, I don't know. Remember when the girl on the train came out and they could trace yeah. it back yeah. to like that most powerful Goodreads, Goodreads reviewer, review, or at least what they said. Right. I right. Don't know. Um, I want, I just, I wonder like what happened in what, what happened in the first part of this year that made this big, because it doesn't seem like the Reese Witherspoon thing was the thing that propelled it. That happened in September. I yeah I also know nothing about what this book is about and I want to I'm going to read it but I want to go in cold. <laughs> the 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 one the brief blurb that stuck in my mind and I don't even remember what this is from it was a mystery perfect for fans of Barbara Kingsolver which oh. to me actually gives it some actually remarkable specificity mm-hmm. um, in my mind like it's going to be literary slash commercial. Good writing, maybe a little slow. There might be some. Oh, they say there's a mystery, but Barbara Kingsolver often has like a mysteryish element, or there's something going on, like a secret or something. So I kind of get that. It's out in set in the North Carolina Outer Banks, which is right. I mean, mm-hmm. I used to go there a lot. A place I one I of like. my favorite I know you places in the world. So there's a lot. There's a lot of um, there's a lot for us to like here. 
But we made a big fuss, and the industry writ large made a big fuss about Becoming selling well. This re was released earlier than Becoming and has sold more. So I don't know what we do with that, except that every now and again this happens where a book takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. You can't plan for it. You can't really account for what happened when. The timeline you laid out is really interesting. It's like Oprah didn't pick it for anything, I don't believe. Like the Hello Sunshine Book Club, were they the wave or were they the surfer on the wave? Who knows yeah. in that situation? Well, and like Becoming came out of the gate hot. So yes. that sold a bunch of, it came out in the fall. It sold a bunch of copies very quickly. I think that Michelle Obama's trajectory started a lot faster than yeah. where the crawdads sing. And so it makes sense to me that Becoming was the publishing story of 2018 because where the crawdads sing had sold 200,000 copies at the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. That's not like, that's good. I mean, great job, Delia Owens, but that's not like a story. Yeah, but this is, I mean, in a way at this point, this will, should be a bigger story because it has, I guess it, it has it in it the central mystery when we talk about cultural phenomenons. It's like, why now? Why this book right now? Um, because really it just would have overcome, overtaken becoming in sales over the last couple of weeks. It's Because it's only up 19,000. Um, and prints copies over Becoming. And I was looking at the Publishers Weekly list last week, and it's selling between ten and 15,000 more copies in Becoming a week right now. So that dis that lead is going to extend. I assume there'll be a movie made of this, because why wouldn't you if a million people and more have bought it already? So clearly for adult fiction, that's the title of the year and for a while, probably since The Girl on the Train, mm -hmm. um, the biggest adult fiction title for sure. Um, other notables, Rachel Hollis together, Girl Stop Apologizing, Girl Wash Your Face, she has number three and fours. Together, those books have sold more than Where the Crawdad Sing. Together, they have sold 995,000 copies, so easily going to swish by a million here in the next week or so. Educated by Tara Westover, number five with 454, long legs on this book. People mm -hmm. are recommending it. They're still buying it. It's in Target and hardcover still. I just saw it the other day and noticed it. That's an interesting one. That's the top five. I don't want, I don't think we need to go through all of these. No. Where else do you want to go from the adult list? Anything you want to pick up? You know, I just think it's interesting about educated, and I'm really curious about what's going to happen there. I think it's going to be even bigger when it comes out in paperback and the yep. book club crowd mm -hmm. gets a hold of it. Um, it seems like Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Yes, which is number I was 20 say the on same here. Thing. That book is hanging on. And I am surprised that The Mister by E.L. James is number 16 with. 220,000 copies sold so far. Like, that's a relatively low number relative to the popularity mm. of Fifty Shades of Grey, but a pretty high number relative to just about anything else because it's the 16th best selling book of the year so far. Um, and I really was not, uh, I haven't heard anything about it. Like, I have seen zero buzz about this book. Um, and so I, I don't know who the readers are that mm. have done that 220,000 copies there. So I thought that was interesting. Riddle me this, Batgirl. So let's say we had um, we had someone at Vintage, uh, we'd we'd shot them up with Truth Serum, <laughs> and we asked them, "Is this above, below, or at your expectations?" What do you think they would say? Oh, I'm gonna say, well, hmm, Truth Serum. I'm gonna say below because I think that they're counting on the E.L. James name to sell these books, and Fifty Shades of Grey had such rabbit fandom yeah, and so many people that you would think that um, it, and this was a, this is a romance as well. Um, so you would think that people would maybe, I can see the publisher side of like, it's another E.L. James romance. She's doing something new. Um, so my, I would think that, that that's a lower number. I don't know. I don't think we've seen like what the advance was that E.L. James yeah. received for the mister, but I would bet that it was a big advance and that 220,000 copies sold in six months is not doing it for that. And I guess maybe there it's like, it's not so much about E.L. James. It was about what the subject matter was in 50 shades of gray. And mm -hmm. like this, my longstanding theory was that those books gave people an accessible way into something that is relatively like taboo in a lot of circles and that, um, it made it okay to explore something like in your book club that it's like, if it's, if it's E.L. James, but it's not going to be titillating or exciting in that same kind of way. I don't think people are invested in her. This is the kind of thing that if I worked in publishing would make me crazy. That oh, yeah. book sold all the copies. <laughs> uh -huh. And and this is the brand recognition that holds to the next title. 
That's all. I mean, look, it's the 16th best selling book of the year. That's great. But Rachel Hollis, her follow up is selling just as well as the first one. Mm-hmm. And there's just effect. No, there's just so little author brand connection for E.L. James from those three books to this. That would make me feel like, why is it worth trying to build up an author's <laughs> brand? Because if, if you can't do it with that book, why even try? I yeah, mean, maybe well, maybe you're right that the subject matter was so exceptional, but you would think just like the Da Vinci Code, the subject matter was so – people read more yeah, of the next of Anne Brown book than they read of this. I actually think that there's really only a small percentage of authors that should be branded as the authors, that it's worth it there, that they are – But wouldn't you pick Yale Jane? I mean, maybe I'm just getting lost in how many books that sold, but like if any – if any, if there were three books. It wasn't just one. I mean, I, again, maybe I also I'm, think I'm the pizza, about you know, this wrong. like the pizza's cold on E.L. James yeah, too. Sure. Like if if the thing that she had done hot on the heels of Fifty Shades of Grey was like, and now E.L. James doing another romance novel instead of like waiting a couple of years and then doing the book from Christian's point of view and then doing whatever else she did. Like it would, I think there would have potentially been a warmer reception here. But to the like, why even bother trying? to brand an author, I actually think it's not worth it for the vast majority of authors unless they are writing, unless they're prolific. And inside that prolificness is a consistency of both subject matter and quality that readers like, like romance authors are the perfect example Mm. of where it does make sense. Like Sarah McLean writes Regency romances with feminist perspectives. The heroines are smart and they're self-determined. You know, if you've read a few of them, you know like kind of exactly what you're going to get in terms of steaminess on the page. Like that's where an author brand makes sense. If it's just like, you know, a, a literary novelist or somebody doing mid-list stuff, like not that that's what E.L. James was intending to do. I think for the most part, just try to sell the book. And that is the thing that readers at least insist on over and over for the most part is like, I just want to read a good book. And there's very few, like it's notable that we've been doing this show for almost seven years. And the, there's like three authors (laughs) that could, that collectively we're invested enough in like, who is that? What is that person's next book? Um, I will read, I'll read anything that that person does. Well, I guess it's not even that I would read it, but like that was a thing that I know to look for. Right. Anyway, it's it's fantastic. Uh, let's we'll get out of this story because we need <laughs> to keep moving. Here's your over under: the Starless Sea will sell more or less, more or fewer than two hundred and twenty thousand copies in its first six months in print. I'm going more. It's going to overperform. Morgan Stern is going to overperform E.L. James in a follow up. That's what your take is. Yes. It's coming out this fall. It's going to be a big hand sell through the holidays. I think she's going to, uh, yes. Hmm. Boy, I don't know. All right. Well, make All a right, note we'll on your out. calendar next under. July. We'll talk under. about it. Okay. I'm going under. Everything this shows to me is you don't, we, we don't know anything. It's the old William <laughs> Goldman about movies. Like, good luck. You try stuff, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but you think you know something, you're going to get the rug pulled out from under you. The last one I was going to mention is the, the, the life-changing magic of tidying up by uh, Kondo still hanging in. Number 14, 230,000 copies. Well, she got so that Netflix th- bump. Was that a, do we know? I mean, or is it just selling? I mean, I, mean, I think I, the I Netflix show, you, I think the Netflix show came out after the first of the year and I did read something about like the, the sales history yeah. um, prior to Netflix and then what happened after it. Like she, she sort of climbed back up after Netflix came out. Um, yeah. But did all the boys you love before, like, I'd love to know that's another stat or a study I'd like to see. What is the effect of a movie coming out on books sales for that mm. title how does it vary across platform or genre or whatever whatever else yeah, it might be yeah i think you're talking about two different things there because to all the boys i've loved before like at least from what i saw everybody who was anticipating that was someone who had already read the book wrong and both of the people in my house re- watched the show and had never read her actually frankly hadn't heard of the book before we watched it but that's huh. a separate situation but were you like on the edge of your seat for the release day no, but that's Netflix. Who's on the, I mean, outside yeah, of Stranger true. Things, I mean, who was on the edge of their seat for life-tending magic of Marie Kondoing on Netflix? Nobody. They were all, they were all folding their socks out of joy. Yeah. Um, kids books. Out of joy. I mean, look, I know this in my house because I have an eight-year-old. These Dogman books 
sell like a house of fire. Um, Dogman number six, Brawl of the Wild, that actually came out last fall. I know because we bought it on release day because I have a kid like that, bless his heart. But 524,000 <laughs> units sold uh, year to date. Number three, uh, our favorite, it'll fade. Oh. It's, it's a quick starter, but it doesn't have any finishing kick for the year. Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss, 483,478 copies. I mean, is there a bigger golden goose in the history of publishing? I'm not even joking. (laughs) I don't think there is. And that's a thing you could not manufacture of like, let's have someone write a children's book that is intended for children that will somehow appeal to people giving gifts to people graduating and it will stay popular for literal decades. It's going to be the giving your dad a tie for Father's Day of graduation gifts. And we're gonna, and it's gonna go for forty years, and you're gonna sell forty million copies. You know what and I it's would eight ninety nine, and I wonder <laughs> when the copyright on that runs. You know what I would love to know is like folks listening to this show. If you are graduating high school or college, more likely yeah. you have like a kid or a friend who's graduating high school or college. How many copies of this do they receive? <laughs> Send me your graduation gift pictures, or, or if you got one as a graduation gift with an inscription from your aunt. Oh. And you still have it. I may be. I may be. Um, Is this maybe a personal pers- example? But I think everyone has one of these. Like you're not going to recycle it, and you're not going to read it. But you also can't get rid of it. It's like it's an emotional paperweight sitting uh-huh. on your bookshelf that you can do nothing with. An emotional and yet, paperweight. And yet people will buy it. The Wonky Donkey. Wonky mm-hmm. Donkey. Number four. I'm happy about two seven. So happy. If you haven't listened to. Um, well, listen, we've, we've talked about – I'll put some annotated show notes uh, for stories, but we did a segment on the episode called Viral about the wonky donkey, which I found to be delightful. It is All so right. delightful. Let's do another sponsor, and then we've got a couple – we've got to get, we get out of here. A couple more sh- stories after this. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him, unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got to go on, on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Uh, you're all hot and bothered about HBO Max. I got I to gotta hear this for you. I got to hear this from you. Oh, all right. Well, you had dropped a link into mm-hmm. our agenda and I was just catching up that, <laughs> catching up and getting angry. Um, that, that That's pretty good. I like that. Coming up next year, HBO and Warner Media are announcing a streaming service because the thing we need is more of those called HBO Max that will combine HBO content with shows and films from CNN, TNT, TBS, The CW, TCM, Adult 
Swim, and more. It's going to include all HBO original content, Warner Media channels, and shows that are made only for HBO Max. Those Max originals include the shows based on Dune, Station Eleven, which like that's the place where I felt the knife enter my mm-hmm. heart. I saw that. I was like, oh, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> and Gremlins. No, no. Additionally, The Flight Attendant, which is a thriller series based on a Chris Bojelian novel. And then here is really where I died. Love Life, a 10-episode half-hour romantic comedy starring Anna Kendrick, produced by Paul Feig. I'm going to have to get a freaking subscription to this thing. You'll, be, you'll also be able to access Game of Thrones, Big Little Lies, other existing HBO shows through HBO Max. But you won't be able to access the HBO Max original content. This makes existing. This makes no naming of this. I don't know what happened like, here. It is ins- <laughs> just, it's, it's insufferable. It is and insufferable. HBO Go and HBO Now and HBO Max are all three different things. What is that? And if you what have HBO and HBO Go, which I do, I will still have to get HBO Max in order to watch Station Eleven. So which I'm going to HBO Max. I mean, I guess the <laughs> I guess the logic is HBO Max is you get it all. Yes. Plus the new stuff, so, like for the- more than you'd have to pay. So they don't want to. I guess they don't want you to subscribe for two services. Like they say, okay. We don't want you to do HBO and the WB Max, right? Which right. this new thing is. We want to have different tiers. Has anyone tried this in streaming yet? I don't think so. To your so. knowledge? I don't think so. I think this is a first. My prediction about what this is going to cause is just a bunch of people calling their cable companies being like, how do I get HBO off my cable package? <laughs> Like that was my first thought was like, well, there's HBO in my cable package and it includes HBO go, but I'm going to have to get this freaking HBO max. Can I get it out of my cable package and still keep the other things? Oh yeah. The customer service rep at Comcast right now are just drinking bourbon. I'm really sorry to Timmy at Verizon Fios. Who's going to have to talk to me later. I know. So Timmy, so (laughs) max includes go and now. Yeah. Um, Max includes well. I don't know if you get HBO Go with it, but you'll get all the stuff that's on HBO Go, and Max will be streaming, so you'll. Be I fine. wonder what the price points are going to be. Are they going to charge? Like I think that's my a HBO. I did an HBO Go subscription for a while. Did I tell you this? I went. I, I burned mm. through the whole Game of Thrones series over the oh, last I don't couple think months, so, no. and so I did a two month, you know, HBO Go. I think subscription. I am so surprised it, that you watched Game of Thrones. It's all the like things that I would I, never. I did, that's another segment. That's a lot <laughs> okay. of fast forwarding. There's a lot of fast forwarding. Okay. My hand was on the clicker. All right. Um, title. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised because like I, my memory is that HBO and Netflix are about the same to subscribe to in terms of a monthly fee. I'm surprised HBO's strategy is not okay. We're going to be HBO Max, but we're going to charge you the same. We're not going to ask you to pay more. We're just going to give you more to, so you stay with HBO. I, I think this is strange. I think this is a really strange way to think about this. Um, yeah, like I wonder what they'll – yeah. I wonder if there's a way that you could be like, I already have HBO on my cable service, so I don't need to be able to watch Big Little Lies on HBO Max. Can I pay for a lower tier that only gives me the HBO originals? <laughs> like, right, I'm yeah. so I don't mad need about friends. this because I, I want to watch Station Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Hello Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Company will produce at least two films, so that's interesting from the book-related angle. Really farther afield, but I guess the hook for this was if there's going to be a, ha- a Harry Potter series. This is where it will be. I don't know what to make of it. I can I can do point counterpoint about this news happening now in this way makes it more or less likely that there's actually an HP, a Harry Potter show and anything farther along the notional development, which we agreed last time has is table stakes. There is absolutely notional development. One is that this this followed awfully hard upon these rumors about a Harry Potter show mm. on the then untitled HBO Max. So if there was like information being seeded, press release stuff going around, conversations, getting ready for this announcement to be happening. Maybe someone in a back room somewhere had a, too much coffee and <laughs> said something about it, mm-hmm. you know, like Robert Galbraith style. Right. Um, or is this, if it were real, we would have heard about it now. Because why make this press release if you have anything hard on Harry, on Harry Potter without saying something? Why? 
Why, why not do Maybe it? because you're saving the Harry Potter news for the day that you actually announce the launch. Like, Maybe. here's the launch. Here's the pricing. Yeah. You're going to, you know, this to me if it were going to be ready for If it were going to be ready for launch date, they absolutely would have said something here. I guess if it's not ready for launch date and you don't have one, don't let people say, I'm just going to wait until they have the Harry Potter show. Yeah. Maybe that's the other way I'm still deeply annoyed that I'm going to have to pay for this thing, but at least it's the same thing. I hadn't connected it that it was the it was Warner Media talking about Harry Potter that we were yeah. updating that last week. Like, okay, so at least I'm, if I'm annoyed I have to pay to watch Harry Potter and I'm annoyed that I have to pay to watch Station Eleven, they're in the same place. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, so Dune, Sisterhood, adaptation. Tokyo Vice, uh, not an adaptation, but it's based at first on the count, which I think was a long ar- mm-hmm. article. The flight attendant adaptation, love life, not an adaptation. Station Eleven adaptation, made for love, book adaptation. Adaptation. I mean, yep. it's amazing how much of these streaming content services are relying on adaptations. Yeah. Maybe greater. I mean, we've said before it's an adaptation gold rush, but it's just brought the bear that sixty-six percent of these shows. Mm-hmm are based on existing properties. Yeah, there was a great piece on Vox either late last week or early this week about what that. makes a book unfilmable and how streaming has killed the notion, really, that a book is unfilmable. Or I mean, is, George R. 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 Martin famously said he wanted to write a series that was unfilmable. And mm-hmm. I haven't read the books, but the series is filmed. I mean, I guess unfilmable is a metaphor for can you capture the thing about the thing. Right. On film, I actually don't think there are that many unfilmable books. There are some, like either. Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. Literally, I don't think you could make a movie out of that since it's mm. all in one person's head. But I could be proved wrong. I mean, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is not that. It, yeah. I, I'm off on a Jeff Jag now, so I'll come <laughs> back to us. Um, two follow things. This is related because it's Lord of the Rings, but also related to the the dollar amount that Amazon paid for Lord of the Rings rights. Yeah. I don't think we talked about it at the time. I never thought about this at the time, I but didn't of course either. it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. That the rights extend not just to adapting it into a TV show. It extends into thing like making a massively multiplier online game, which apparently they are. Yeah. That's going to be set in the far distant past from the time of the Hobbits events, but not related to it. I don't know that the left hand isn't talking to the right about what's going on over there and if that's good or bad, but there's a big massively multiplier online game. If For those of you who don't know the acronyms, it's like World of Warcraft or um, Fortnite or something else like that where you get online and you play with other people in real time. Uh, makes sense. There's already one right now, which is weird. That has a oh. different developer. I actually played that like seven years ago for a little bit, which is fine. But this is the kind of thing. It's not just for this series. I think that's mm-hmm. the thing we learned. There's, uh, there's going to be merchandise and other yeah. kinds of things coming out about it. Original audiobooks, I wouldn't be surprised. Original new things. Uh, all thrown into that same yeah, space. Yeah, it never even occurred to me that never Amazon should have. would make it a have. video game, but it should have. It that- should have. When we talked about Mindy Kaling's deal as maybe being a multi, an omni-channel deal, I should have been like, oh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, in oh. fairness to us, Amazon's not already like making video games and selling no. them or putting them through Prime, so it's not available as a, no. an example. But yeah, that's it's interesting. Um, I don't want to do that. I thought this was just. I thought it was interesting because. I just thought it was interesting. I don't have to justify it's our show. We can be interested and say things. <laughs> the Army has released its first audiobooks. I thought huh. this was fascinating. The recent weeks, the Training and Doctrine Commands Combined Arms Doctorate and Directorate, which is just an unbelievable name of an organization, <laughs> um, has released audiobook versions of a pair of training manuals for the first time as part of experiment to see if it's an effective medium to spread information to soldiers across the force. Cool. I guess I never would have thought about the army not having audiobook versions of its training manuals. You think I think of like army and the DARPA as like they're the ones that give us this weird technology stuff that's maybe dark and twisty and maybe we shouldn't use it. But it's interesting that they're trying this and we don't it also brought to bear that we don't have and we would see it or have talked about mm-hmm. it if we had had it many studies about audiobooks and comprehension. Yeah, and it made me think about like are there audiobook versions of like just general textbooks, like <sighs> for accessibility, I would think there would be. Yeah, but if you're just you know taking your organic chemistry class in college, question. can you listen to that instead? I so wonder. let's say we here. Here's I'm going to give you just an anecdote thought experiment, which is a hybrid of things that both of which we use very loosely and not related <laughs> to their actual meaning. But anyway, everyone knows what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You have a test tomorrow. 
and you can either read the print version or listen to the audiobook in preparation for the test. You can do it once. You can't flip back. You can't take notes. Just straight up recall. Which format are you picking right now? I'm still picking print, but that's because how too. that's how I learn. Like I will be able to, I'll remember where I saw a thing on the page. Yeah. But if I had had the option, especially for maybe something that's not so facty, but like, well, like you just, fl- yeah, you have to go like memorize it, right? Yeah. Like if I had, if I had been able dates. to like listen to uh, some of the like philosophy texts that I had to read in college or theology or like anything that there's like some narrative to. And the, um, the concept is what you're trying to understand rather than like specific right, detailed information. Right. I think mm-hmm. I agree I, with that. I would have been into that. I mean, I would have had to do it on a disc man, but I would have been You couldn't be running or in a car because you'd be skipping all over the place. Right. But I would have liked the idea of it. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. There's a link in the show notes to this and all the the stories we've talked about at bookriot.com slash listen. If you've used audio for training manuals or study materials of any kind, shoot us an email. Tell us your story. Podcast at bookriot.com. Thanks to um, Ben and uh, Miranda and, uh, oh, I forgot who asked us about. um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Thanks, you guys, for writing in. Uh, That's our show. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.